Well, good morning. Great to see you this morning. Hope you're doing well. I would be remiss this morning if I failed to mention uh, that uh, this is the weekend in which we as a nation remember uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and his legacy. My understanding is his birthday was actually on Friday, the 15th of January, and our nation will observe that date tomorrow. But uh, father of the modern civil rights movement, one of my favorite quotes that uh, <clears throat> from him um, is the one where he said, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. And in the same way, hatred cannot drive out hatred. Uh, only love can do that. And uh, we all need to uh, reflect, I think, on those words uh, and understand, especially at a time like the one we are in now as a nation, uh, the significance of that. Well, let me ask you a question this morning, and I, I don't want you to lie because you're in church. Um, how many of you would like to have more money? Just raise your hands. Some of you think it's a trick question or refusing to raise your hands. Um, anytime someone tells you they don't care about money, they're probably going to lie to you about other things too. Someone once said, I've been rich and I've been poor. Rich is better, and I agree. Uh, there have been times in my life when I've had little, the times when I've had a little more. Uh, in most instances, having a little more is better than having a little less. Uh, throughout this series, uh, Living with the Benjamins, we're going to be talking about money. And the first thing I want to tell you is that I'm sorry, and I want to apologize. Uh, what do I want to apologize for? I, w I want to apologize for not talking about money more. Why would I say that? Do you know that Jesus talked about money and material possessions more than any other topic? Sixteen of the 38 parables were concerned with how to handle money and possessions, our attitudes toward those things. In the Gospels, an amazing one out of ten verses, uh, 288 in all, deal directly with the subject of money. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, less than 500 verses on faith, but more than 2,000 verses on money and possessions. In total, a full one-third of Jesus' teaching focused on money and stuff and our relationship to it. In fact, if you take all of the Bible's teaching on eternal life heaven, hell, love, take all of that in combination, there is still more teaching about money and material possessions. Why do you think that is? Well, here's why I think it is. And here's why I think we need to talk about money more. It's because there is no greater test of where our hearts are than the manner in which we relate to money and possessions. And what I want you to understand right at the outset of this series is that when it comes to what the Bible wants to teach us about money, the issue is not primarily about what God wants from you. Instead, it's what he wants for you. 
It's not what he wants from you. Instead, it's what he wants for you. And I imagine that for some of you, that's good news because the minute I mentioned that we were going to talk about money, your body tightened up just a little bit. Because your, our operative assumption so often is that it's all about what God wants from us. But no, what the Bible teaches, it teaches because God wants something for us. Does anybody remember the cover of Time magazine from September 18th, 2006? It uh, was one of the most popular covers in the history of the magazine. It asked the question, does God want you to be rich? And they, they interviewed um, mega church pastors, pastors of these enormous churches. And it was very interesting because 50% of the, these mega church pastors says, yeah, God wants you to be rich. And 50% of them said no. And it, they kind of went back and forth. And there are some scriptures that seem to be saying that God wants us to be rich. And there are others that seem to be saying that God wants us to be poor. And uh, this morning... Um, I'm going to tell you the correct answer to that question. I and I alone, of all of the pastors in the world, I'm going to share the, the correct answer. Here it comes. The answer is yes. God wants you to be rich. He wants you to be rich in freedom. He wants you to be rich in joy. And he wants you to be rich in peace. And I think you'll agree that when most of us are talking about finances, those words aren't typically a part of the vocabulary. See, God knows if there's any area in our lives where we are most likely not going to experience freedom and joy and peace, it's in the area of our personal finances, our material possessions, and our relationship to those things. And that's why we need to understand that the primary issue is not what God wants from us, but what he wants for us. And that is why the Bible addresses the issue so often. So this morning and for the next four Sundays, we're going to be talking about money. Some of you may be offended, and trust me, I've even offended myself. But remember that uh, we're never offended or we're rarely offended unless what someone says has some element of truth in it. For example, if people tell me I'm too short and skinny, I'm, I'm rarely offended by that. You know, but if they tell me I'm a little wide for my for my height, I, I might be. See, we're, we're rarely offended unless it's true. If something we talk about makes you feel uneasy over these weeks, then I would suggest that you take it to heart. Investigate it. And over these weeks, if we will take seriously what God wants to say to us, we will have taken some important steps toward experiencing greater freedom, greater joy, and greater peace. Well, if you uh, have your program in your hand, would you just open that up if you haven't already? Anybody need an extra one? Anybody need one? I see no hands. Okay. Okay. I want to ask you to consider your current financial situation. And I'm going to ask you to rate it on a scale of 1 to 10, from surviving on the low end to thriving on the high end. And before you do that, let me 
let me provide you with some criteria for this exercise. For the purposes of this exercise, we're going to determine whether you're surviving or thriving, not on the basis of the amount of your income, but on the basis of your personal knowledge regarding your stuff. For example, knowing how much money is coming in and how much money is going out. And I wonder if your experience has been anything like ours. I mean, there there have been times in our lives where we've had so little income that we could barely afford to pay attention. Um, you, know, you know, a date consisted of sitting on the couch together with a bowl of homemade popcorn watching a video that we rented with a half-price coupon. Uh, and have you been there? Most of us have at one point or another. And I don't think we're really unusual in that, but, but here's what happens for many, if not most, people. When their income increases, let's just say it doubles, maybe it triples, they still find at the end of the, mon- uh, at the, end of the month that they have no more money than they did when their income was much smaller. What happened? Their lifestyle expanded with their income, so they were still spending it all. And the issue is never the amount you make. The issue is your focus. The issue is your heart. So here's, here's the criteria for, for evaluating whether you're surviving or thriving. Uh, you're on the surviving end of the scale, if you spend more money than you make in a year, you can say, well, that, that goes without saying. Well, maybe, maybe not. You're on the surviving end if you don't know whether you spend more than you make in a year. You're on the surviving end if you don't care <laughs> whether you spend more money than you make in a year. And you're on the surviving end if you have a financial dream but no plan for how to achieve it. Time just keeps on ticking, ticking, ticking into the future. You may know that you need a financial plan, but if you procrastinate on that, time may run out. See, the best time to be thinking about that and putting a plan in place is when you're in your teens and your 20s. You know the second best time? It's right now, right now. If you are making financial decisions that you hope your spouse never finds out about, you're probably on the surviving end. If you're making financial decisions that that you hope the IRS never finds out about, you're probably on the surviving end. If you have no idea how much you owe overall, you're probably on the surviving end. And if you have no system in place for keeping track of your expenses, where your money is going, you're probably on the surviving end. So go ahead and rate your situation based on your knowledge of your current finances, your income, your outgo, your indebtedness, whether or not you have a financial plan. See, this could be more difficult. We could be talking about things that are mysterious, like relationships. Men, how many of you have your girlfriend or your wife all figured out? Just keep your hands down. 
money is not mysterious. You can track money. A certain amount comes in, a certain amount goes out, and yet most of us don't have a clue. It's not an art, but a science. It's not mysterious. It's simply math. It's just math. So here's a fun fact to know and share and to think about and remember. The average American adult, 40 years of age and younger, is spending 118% of their monthly income with no idea of what's coming in or what's going out. That's just a mind-boggling statistic from a very reputable source. And do you know why most of us spend more than we make and have no idea where our money is going? Think about our culture for a moment. What do you see in the movies? What do you see on TV? Think about the way the average American family is depicted on television. What what kind of houses do they live in? What kinds of cars do they drive? What kind of neighborhoods do they live in? See, all the commercials that you see on television have one thing in common. Their goal is to create a high level of discontentment inside of you regarding your present circumstances, your present possessions, your present social status, and the cumulative effect of all of those images and all of those messages is overwhelming. And we just kind of absorb it without really examining it, without really investigating it and and critiquing it. The truth is that our culture keeps us laser-focused on what we don't have. So we're conditioned to think, if I just had more money, all of my problems would eventually be solved. It's what our culture teaches us. It's a constant drumbeat all the time, all the time, all the time. But it's fundamentally false. Here's some other interesting statistics. Are you aware that 30% of lottery winners end up committing suicide? 30%. Did you know that 85% of lottery winners go bankrupt within three years? Surviving or thriving has nothing to do with the amount. The issue is the focus of your heart and your life in relationship to your money and your possessions. And God wants each of us to move from financial survival to financial stability to financial significance. From survival to stability to significance. Well, what does all of that mean? Well, survival, I would suggest, means living from paycheck to paycheck. And when an unexpected setback happens, you have car trouble, you have a flat tire, your oven catches fire, you don't know how you're going to deal with it. You're in trouble. So out comes the credit card and up goes your indebtedness. Stability, I would suggest, means that that when unexpected setbacks happen, I can respond because I have some financial cushion. I have a, a margin. If I lose my job, I'll be okay at least for a while. Uh, no longer am I living from paycheck to paycheck. Significance means even more. It means that 
Not only have I moved from survival to stability, but now I have some money to invest above and beyond my cushion. I have some money that's, at least some money that's making money for me. I have enough that when God extends an unexpected call to me to contribute financially or materially to make a difference in someone else's life, I can respond. I can participate. I can contribute. God wants each of his kids, and I think this is the message in Scripture, God wants each of his kids to experience financial freedom where we're not bound up by our finances, but we're experiencing peace and joy. And here's the dirty little secret. If we're constantly staring at stuff, we will never get past financial survival and move on to financial stability. Think of it this way. You're going along in survival mode when that wonderful time of year comes when you go to the mailbox and you find there an envelope from the IRS that contains your tax return check. See, if you're like most people, most, most Americans at that point, the amount of that tax return is already spent. You might think about your COVID-19 relief check that that many of you are waiting for or maybe have already received. So the reality is that, that most of us already have plans about what we're going to do with it, or maybe we've spent in advance, and most of those plans have to do with stuff. We're constantly thinking about what we want to buy, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. The next thing we want, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. So that if we get a little extra, we already have plans for it. We get a little windfall, and we already have plans for that. You see, again, it has nothing to do with the amount that you have, the amount that you receive. It has everything to do with the focus of your heart and your mind and your life. See, and then there's there's that day when another letter comes in the mail with three very dangerous words on the front. You know what they are? You are pre-approved. Woohoo! I must be awesome. I'm pre-approved. Somebody must really trust me. I'm pre-approved. Don't you dare open that. Just burn it. Shred it. Run away from it. American cowboy and social commentator Will Rogers is famous for this statement. Too many people spend money they haven't earned to buy things they don't need to impress people they don't like. And I would add to that even people they don't know. So here's maybe what the big takeaway is this morning, that pursuing the good life, the way the world defines it, is the enemy of experiencing the great life that God intends for you. And we've been conditioned to define the good life as cha-ching, 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 haven't we? Bling, bling, bling. Why? Because we're constantly staring at stuff. I mean, I love to go to Costco. It's just like a little vacation. It's like a, it's like staring at stuff for a while. Not quite as fun now that there's no samples, right? Not, you can't have lunch there anymore. No more free lunch. No such thing as a free lunch. 
constantly staring at stuff, the big smart TV that I can't afford, the, the house that I can't afford, the remodel that I can't afford, the car that I can't afford, the lifestyle I want but can't afford, and on and on and on and on. And God says we got to stop staring at stuff and change our focus because if we don't, we will never reach financial stability, let alone financial significance. The Bible is going to give us a key this morning that unlocks the door to financial freedom, helps us to move from good to great. 1 Timothy six seventeen to 19, command those, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Command those who are rich in this present world. Let's just stop right there for a moment. How many of you, when you hear that, say, well, that's not me? That's not describing me. I can tune out now. Really? Let me uh, add a little perspective. As of 2019, the median household income in Thurston County was $75,924. And if that represents your household income, understand this that it puts you in the 99.8th percentile, which means that you are in the top two-tenths of 1% of the wealthiest people in the world. Let me put that another way. That means that from a material perspective, you have a lot more in common than you think with Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates than you do with the vast majority of the other 99% in the world's population who earn less than you do. If you work 40 hours a week at minimum wage, you are in the top 3.8% of the richest people in the world. If you work 20 hours a week at minimum wage, you are in the top 16% of the world's wealthiest people. And it would take the average worker in Indonesia 13 years to make that amount. Your monthly income at 20 hours a week at minimum wage would pay the monthly salaries of 42 doctors in Kyrgyzstan. If you have a telephone, and let's just assume that it actually works and you have a data plan, you're in the top 40% of the world's wealthiest people. If you own an automobile, you're in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest. Think of that. The median annual household income worldwide as of 2013, which was the most recent figure I could find, was $9,733. And the median per capita household income was 2920 Almost half the world, over 3 billion people, live on less than $2.50 a day, less than 1000 a year. 
As of 2013, if wealth was distributed evenly among all the people in the world, we would each be earning $850 a year. That should excite you when people start talking about wealth redistribution, right? Anybody feeling rich yet? Command those who are rich in this present world not to, do, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, I did a little Greek study on that word hope, and you know what it means? It means hope. But more than that, it means rest, and it means comfort. Paul's saying, don't put your hope in wealth. Instead, find your rest and your comfort in God. Why is it that I buy things I don't really need with money I don't have to impress people I don't like or even know? It's because it's one of the ways that I comfort myself. A little retail therapy. A lot of the stuff that I buy is not for me, but for you so that you'll think better of me. It's image polishing, another branch of the how-do-we-look cult. But constantly staring at stuff, constantly accumulating, will never get us to financial stability, let alone financial significance. In light of that, take a look at this video. I had an accident and my hip was broken in so many pieces. I have two rods in my hip. She's an angel among us. If you watch her in the bread company, everyone comes in to see Catherine. You know, we sell the bread, but I feel like there are some people who specifically come with prayer requests and uh, I go pray for them. One day when we were sharing, she said she was in need of a different car, that her car was needing expensive repairs. I had been saving money, but uh, I knew it wasn't enough, so I knew I would take a few years to save for it. So a couple months later, I went in and I said, Catherine, how's your car fund coming? And she said, I gave it all away. And I looked at her, and, and she said, there was a widow in need, and I gave her the $5,000. I struggled a lot when I gave that money. And uh, I said, I feel okay, but do you think I did the right thing? I mean, I cannot give what I don't have, so I just gave what I had. I was shocked, and so I come home and I tell Pete that we needed to help Catherine with her car fund. He looked at me and he said, no, I think we need to buy Catherine a car. And I said, okay, great. Pete called Scott and said, do you know Catherine Gray Harvest? And he said, yes, he did. Pete said, well, we'd like to buy her a car. He asked Pete, do you want it used your new car? And it just hit him right in the face. Why would he ask me that? 
Of course I would want a used car. That's good enough. He just paused for a moment, and he said, I want a new car. And he said it was silent on the phone for a few seconds. And Scott said, whoa, I want to help. And so he pitched in some. So she came to the bakery, and uh, she asked me, if you were to buy a car, what kind of a car would you like? I said, Debbie, I'm not really planning to buy a car. But she said, oh, just tell me. And she said, I'd like a SUV cruise control. And she said, I'd like a light color. And we called Scott, and he said, I think I've got the perfect car. So Pete said, can we deliver it tomorrow? So we have the bread company owner and his family, Scott and his family and our family. And Catherine sees us all coming in, and she's just all excited to see everyone. And uh, I went to give them hugs, and I said, what's Pete doing here? I did have the, the biggest idea. When I went out, And so we walked her over to the car. We said, Catherine, this is your new car. So, oh, I said, for me, this is for me. I said, oh, I, I knew God had many cars, but I didn't know he had a new one for me. So God had new cars <laughs> for me. We all stood there in tears as we saw the joy on Catherine's face. And we got to be a part of it. And the joy of that was unbelievable. It's so right. It was such an excitement to drive it. We told Catherine that we would like this to be confidential. But I kept running into people who would say, I heard what you did for Catherine. It wasn't even us, it was Catherine. It all started with Catherine giving of what she had to a widow to help her, and it just continues on. Generosity begets generosity. We don't give in order to receive. We give because it's the nature of Jesus Christ. He gave us his life. So we, we have the, the DNA of Jesus Christ of giving. <laughs> yeah, so this is one story I will never forget in my life. to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. What does it mean to lay up treasure as a firm foundation, as verse 19 suggests? Is Paul's contrast with the uncertainty of wealth in verse 17 
And that word uncertainty points to the, the quality of being temporary, transitory. It means that material wealth is progressively fading away and will be utterly unrecognized in heaven. You can't take your monetary or material wealth with you, Paul says, but here's what you can take with you. Here's the currency of the kingdom of God. Here is what leads to eternal rewards. Here's what leads to real life in the here and now and in eternity, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. See, greed equals bondage. And most of us will say, well, I'm not greedy. In reality, nobody wants to admit to that, but but consider these two thoughts. If you're spending more than you make, you fit the definition of greedy. If you're putting your rest, your comfort, your sense of well-being, your hope in wealth, you fit the definition of greedy. By contrast, generosity equals freedom. And generosity is enabled by financial stability. Generosity is the indicator of financial significance. And in order to move from financial survival to stability, I, need, I have to stop staring at stuff. And in order to do that, I need to start thinking about how I can give. See, the key to unlocking the door to financial freedom is to begin choosing generosity. It, it's not a function of the amount of your income. It's not a function of that the, the number on your paycheck. It's an issue of focus. It's an issue of heart. It's a It's an issue of the the direction and the inclination, the posture of your life. Greed leads to bondage. Generosity leads to freedom. So remember this principle. Stop thinking about what you can get and start thinking about what you can give. Or how you can get into the position to give. Generosity is the key that unlocks the door to financial freedom. It's the fuel that will power your life from financial survival to financial stability and ultimately to financial significance. It begins now. Even if you're in survival mode, God wants you to learn to be generous because that is one of the very first steps, if not the first step, to financial stability. I was hoping today to hand out a copy of the treasure principle to each of you as you leave. Some of you may already have it. We had a run on them in the first service. <laughs> I think there, I was told that there are two left. And uh, so if, if you're the first one to the door, you might be lucky. I'm going to order some more this week, and, uh, and we'll have those uh, available next week. But please, uh, when you get a copy, or if you already have a copy, Read it. If you've read it before, read it it again. It's a challenging book. It sets the bar pretty high. But choose to take a step or maybe several steps. Maybe you would take the Treasure Principle book and, and read through it with your life group or with your spouse or with a friend or with um, your family. 
But as we close this morning, I want to challenge you to take a step towards generosity. If you're at the left end of the scale, you're surviving instead of thriving, I want to challenge you to take a a step in the direction of financial stability. And if you're financially stable, I want to challenge you to take a step in the direction of financial significance. Let me just uh, suggest a step that you might take this week. One would be to evaluate your outgo. Whether by yourself or as a family unit, decide that you know, if you're single, it's just you, right? If you have a family, decide that every family member who spends money will get a receipt for every purchase. My wife's a stickler for this stuff. <laughs> Keep every receipt for the next four weeks. For example, your house payment, your utilities, your groceries, Starbucks, McDonald's, uh, impulse purchases, and then right around Valentine's Day, which is when this series is going to culminate, sit down and go through them and just see where the money has been going. Set up some categories. Where's my money going? You may be surprised. You may even be alarmed at where money is going that you're not even thinking about. Secondly, I want to encourage you to choose gratitude. And one of the ways of doing that is that every day for the next month, sit down and write out some things that you're grateful for. I love this. This happens a lot of times at Thanksgiving. I've noticed on Facebook, people will start on the first day of November, and and uh, it's just, you know, Thanksgiving month. And so every day they're identifying something they're thankful for. So the best antidote to greed is gratitude. Gratitude eats greed for breakfast. And third would be to read and reflect on the treasure principle by Randy Alcorn. And again, discuss it with a partner, your life group, friends, spouse, family. Start a new group for this purpose, perhaps. Um, and by the way, right now, media, which all of you have access to, if you don't, if you don't have an, a subscription, uh, we can add you at no charge to you. And you have access to thousands of Christian videos. One of those is a video series on the treasure principle by Randy Alcorn. Um, There's a leader's guide if you want to do a a discussion with your family or with a group of friends. There are participants' handouts. There are four video teaching sessions uh, from the author. And uh, it's free. And, And it's amazing. So I would encourage you to consider that. So what do we take away this morning? If nothing else, take this, that it's not what God wants from us, but it's what God wants for us. That we would be rich in freedom, that we would be rich in peace, that we would be rich in joy. Greed leads to bondage. Generosity is the key that unlocks the door to financial freedom. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks down into the nitty-gritty of our lives and and challenges our idols, challenges us to move away from idolatry to uh, worship of the one living and true God. And Lord, help us to remember that that as we uh, invest our resources, as we relate to our money and our possessions, we are 
exercising acts of worship. So, Lord, help us to worship that which is worthy of worship. Help us to worship you who alone are worthy of worship. Thank you that you are for us, that all of your commandments, all of your instructions to us are for us because you love us. May we be people who move to stability and significance, who are generous. Would you work that in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.